Thank you that the truths that we've just sung out, that we can, we can praise you with confidence because of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, who ascended the hill for us. And it's under his name and his power that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jared Boyd. I'm a student pastor here with Westwood. And I said this the first hour. It's, it's always funny whenever you start to see people and they start to realize that Kenneth ain't here. And, you know, there's like a letdown, like a, oh, you know, it's just me. I'm sorry. It's just me. Uh, yeah, I'm at least excited to be with you this morning. I don't know about you. Uh, I'm going to start things off with a strange statement because we're a college football state. It just launched last night. I don't know if you knew about this, but I'm a Dallas Mavericks fan. And you're like... Who's that? What is that? What is this? Some distant farm league in baseball? No. The Dallas Mavericks. It's an NBA team. Again, you're like, what? NBA? What? Is that like a business degree from Alabama? What are we talking about? No. The National Basketball Association. It's our professional basketball league here. The Dallas Mavericks are my favorite team because my best friend when I was a kid, his name was Tommy Atkinson. His dad, Tom Atkinson, was the athletic trainer for the Dallas Mavericks. And so I had a lot of perks through that friendship. I got to go out to his ranch home. It's Texas. There's a ranch. And so we would, you know, have dinner with players sometimes. They'd come over to his house to get to shoot, play horse with Dallas Maverick professional basketball players. So I became, obviously, a big fan of the Mavs. I got to go to the box seats. We'd go to the games, get, like, VIP treatment, right? We're walking onto the court, getting to meet players, going into the locker room. And it's no question why, because... I'm with Tom Atkinson. He's got the credentials. He's got the cool logo lanyard, right, that nobody questions whenever he's walking into places. We just walk in. I've always thought it'd be fun, by the way, to, like, try this at an Atlanta Falcons game or something or a Hawks game, you know, just print off my own, like, name badge with the Falcons logo and just laminate it and see what happens, you know. Just try to walk in like you own the place. But we, it's because Tom had the credentials. There was this unspoken, he's with me, right? We just walk in and meet locker room players. Jason Kidd, Jamal Mashburn. You're like, this is Alabama, man, all right? We don't know who that is. Go play NBA Jam 95. I have a few people who know what I'm talking about here, all right? We have an invitation to access the Father in heaven and we have no business and no credentials to be able to qualify us and grant us access to the VIP treatment of presence with God. But Jesus, being rich in mercy, looks at us, looks at his Father, and he says, they're with me. And this is the gospel according to Psalm 24. As we've just heard it read by Carson, I want to circle back around to the text this morning, and the last word that seems insignificant, it's placed in two different places in the psalm. It's all throughout the psalms, and it's a, it's a song word, and it simply means to pause and reflect, to exalt, selah. It's the last word of the psalm, and it's a beautiful word that calls us to worship, selah, just stop, just, we come in, we enter this place to worship King Jesus, 
And the purpose is to just stop and still your minds and, and calm your hearts and your souls about the worries of this week. Some of you just have a task list that's a mile long. Some of you fly by the seat of your pants just trying to hang on. You got baggage. We got all kind of stuff going on in our lives. But we get for a moment, a special moment once a week to gather as a church family. We just get to stop and in unified presence with God, Selah. Reflect on the glory of God. So let's do that. Let's just stop right now and just reflect for the next 30 minutes on King Jesus. Here we go, verse one. He says, all the earth, the fullness therein, everything, it's his. So reflect on that. Reflect that everything is the Lord's and not just on planet earth, right? Everything, everything in the universe is his. We know this, Colossians 1:16 tells us that by him, all things were created, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him and by him. Everything exists because King Jesus, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit spoke it into existence and he rules over it as a result. Everything, every star, planet, everything is his. So just stop and it's, it's easy to lose the magnitude of everything there. Right. I'm going to show you a picture of a galaxy far, far away. I'm not getting into Star Wars. Okay, don't worry. But that little zoomed-in picture is of the farthest galaxy observable to mankind. It's 32 billion light years away. Okay. Just to help you get perspective on exactly how far that is, how vast that is. A light year is roughly six trillion miles, one light year. Okay, so if we, you, were to hop on the fastest spacecraft known to mankind, with your destination being in a different solar system, this extra planet Kepler 48b. It's 470 light years away, 470 light years. Okay, we just said that one is 32 billion light years. Okay, this is 470 light years. It would take you 20 million years to get there. Okay? We can't fathom. We don't have math. There's not enough zeros we could put on the screen to understand how vast the universe is. And he spoke it into existence and rules over it all. That's the God of glory that we serve. Sometimes the Bible paints a picture of the glory and might of God that is better than any man-made illustration. In this instance, I love Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verses 15 through 23, puts it this way. I love this, sorry, because it's the most humiliating, like it, it just makes you feel how finite you are. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. America, we're like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. 
They're accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth his emptiness. God is glorious. Nothing compares. He, he descends to our highest man-made towers and laughs. We're grasshoppers and drops in buckets. You should feel the weight of these truths and your problems and concerns and worries and anxieties should quiver in the precipice of such greatness. You have a God that powerful that cares for you. See, one chapter before our psalm in 23, it's the famous psalm that almost everybody knows, the Lord is my shepherd, I don't have any wants because he is my protector and my defender behind me. He leads me, he guides me, he quiets my soul. I'm content because of him. Why, verse three says, for his name's sake. Oh, he cares for you, but don't mix it around. His chief concern in his care for you is the care for his name's sake, his glory, his renown. He loves you so much and the greatest gift and care and blessing that he can give you is himself. Because nothing is greater than him. It would be a crime for God not to be concerned chiefly about his glory. Because it's the greatest blessing that we could have and our greatest joy. But the greatness of God's character... Right, and, and, and you think about the greatness, right? Just even on earth, just think about the universe. Just think about the sights and the, the smells and the sounds and just all the amazingness that God has created here on earth, and it points to the amazingness of who God is. And his amazing character is it's, it's more than his bigness. It's more than his power and his beauty and his creativity. More importantly, Psalm 24.3 keys in on the chief, the key attribute to unlocking all of the other attributes of God's glory. And that's his holiness. Him being set apart, different. Nothing compares, Isaiah 40. Psalm 24, 3 asks the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? So this is massive question. Who can get to this glorious God? Who created everything? Who can even stand in his presence, his holy presence? Who would even dare to attempt such a thing? If you understand holiness correctly, you would understand the danger of such a proposal. We can't skim past the gravity of such a question here. We have to understand the holiness of God and feel the weight of the fact that he is uncommon. When Moses encountered this burning bush as a shepherd in Midian, he turns to see what it's about. 
and a voice calls out to him and says, Moses, Moses, don't come any further. Why? Because the place that you're approaching is holy ground. There was nothing inherently holy about the particles of sand, right? God didn't look down and be like, I did good on that sand. Let's make that the place where Moses discovers me. No, like there's nothing inherently valuable about that sand. What made it holy was God's presence. And, and as he begins to approach this holy ground, what does God command him to do? If he, why, do, why does he say to stop? Because it's dangerous to enter the presence of a holy God as an unclean person. And so what does he do? He has him remove his sandals which seems strange. Why? Because in that culture, feet are the closest thing to the ground, earth, dirt, uncleanliness. Now, some of y'all are like, I connect well with that. Feet are nasty. That's not just a Middle Eastern culture thing. That's a my culture thing. Feet are gross. Right? You get it. Uncleanliness. The very thing that represented his unholiness he had to remove in order to approach God's holiness. Something had to change, in other words. He couldn't just approach God on his own unholy, unclean terms. He had to approach God on his holy terms. So he removed his shoes that represented his unholiness. Listen, have, have you experienced the holiness of God? The only answer to that question is if you have experienced it, then something will have changed. For your sins to be removed, because God is a holy God, Habakkuk 1.13, he can't even look upon sin. He must punish it. So you can't approach this God with unclean, unholy it's your only hope for a holy God that your sins be removed Jesus is the one who removes your sins and an encounter with Jesus removes your sins and helps you now it, it is your only hope for approaching this God let's take this application a little bit further what happened when Moses left this encounter with the holy God God commands him. He says, I want you to go back to your people, my people, and I want you to lead them. I want you to tell them what you're going to do and lead them into worship of me. Exodus 4. Exodus 5, next chapter over, what happens? He goes, uh, he, he, well, he goes and does that in Exodus 4. He goes and leads the people to worship. Exodus 5 enters the scene. He's approaching this orphan shepherd from Midian, insignificant, no credentials, goes to Pharaoh, like the, the most powerful man on the planet, and says, hey, you know the last 400 years how you've had these people, like hundreds of thousands of free labor? Let them go. That's crazy. You don't do that kind of radical obedience unless you've been encountering or had an encounter with a holy God. It's impossible to have an encounter with the holy God of the universe and not be changed. I heard it put this way. I was a senior in high school and I heard a sermon one time and this illustration just rot, it just totally wrecked me. And I wanted to, uh, it's, I feel like it's the best way to help get it across. If, if I were to just show up late this morning, right? Kevin is, the band are all like, what? What's going on? Like, 
Kenneth's not here. Bummer. Right? Somebody's got to take the pulpit. Like, we got to have a... Kevin's starting his testimony, right? He's playing keys underneath, ad-libbing as we go. And then I start... I run up on stage all of a sudden, right? And I'm like, oh, y'all, I'm so sorry I'm late. I am so... Forgive me. You're not going to believe this. I'm on the way here, and I get a flat tire. And I step out into the road to examine my, my vehicle to see what the problem is. And as I step out into the road... Man, a semi-truck going like 50 miles an hour on Highway 31 just smacked me. So that's why I'm late. I'm sorry. I just had to clean up and just get here. You'd be like, what kind of madman? You can't possibly have an encounter with a semi-truck and not be in the hospital or dead, man. What are you talking about? And the questions return to us. You can't possibly have an encounter with the holy God of the universe and not be changed. What's bigger, God or a semi-truck? Holy encounter with God produces holy obedience to God. But we return to our question in verse three. He asks, who, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can enter his holy presence? Answer verse four, he who has clean hands. And you say, oh, I'm, I'm pretty clean. You gotta do good. Like my eyes, my feet, my hands, like I've overall produced good and never really do much bad. And I believe you. You've been quite good, but appearance of cleanliness is not enough. Which is why he goes further. He doesn't just say clean hands, he says, in a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. See, it's not just the outward appearance of holiness that God is concerned with. It's the inward. It's the heart, which is the source of holiness that he's concerned with. Holiness, by the way, can't even happen apart from a heart source of holy that's been changed. To attempt holy living without a holy heart is as futile as a farmer who, for some unknown reason, would go into soil and throw out hackberry seeds and hope for apple trees to sprout forth. That doesn't make any sense. You have to change the seed source to have apple trees, which is the very parable that Jesus paints in Matthew 7. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. The source has to be changed. The only hope for clean living is a clean, pure heart. But he doesn't stop there. He says that you also can never have worshipped the wrong things. He says you can't falsely, you can't lift your soul to what is false. In other words, 24-7 worship of God above all. Fourth century theologian, pastor, thinker, Augustine, paraphrased version, once said this. Your primary problem isn't just that you believe or that you think the wrong things. Your primary problem is that you think and believe and do the wrong things because you love the wrong things. That's the very heart of worship. You're like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not like creating little man-made idols and worshiping them. That's, that's not what idolatry is. That's, It's not what false worship is many times. For us, false worship is what happens on Saturdays in our country. It's anything that we put above the Lord in our cares and concerns and our wallets and our time. 
And it says, if we've ever done that, we're unholy. Well, who could ever achieve such a thing? And what kind of requirement is this? Clean hands, pure heart, always worshiping the Lord 24-7? That's impossible. And what's at stake? He says he will receive a blessing from the Lord, verse 5, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. The mission, ascend the hill of the Lord and be in his presence. The means, clean hands, pure heart, worship him 24-7. The reward, blessing, salvation, God's presence. This is a defeating plan. Because in God's standard of holiness, clean hands, pure heart, we fall totally short. That's the very definition of sin, Romans 3.23. We miss the mark. So, in the same way that a leper is cast out of the camp in Israel for his impurity, so are we. Which, by the way, a leper was the outward appearance of, of, of the brokenness of sin and God in his holiness would would have these laws, right, that we find in Leviticus that, that, you know, don't even have anything to do with a leper. And so what would happen is the priest would, <clears throat> excuse me, examine the, the skin disease and declare it leprosy if he felt it was leprosy, and they would be cast out of the camp. On their way out of camp, the people would be, so that nobody would come in touch and have an encounter with this leper, this, this leper they would be shouting, leper, leper as you're escorted outside the city. And in the same way, that's you and I, because we're unclean. We have this leprosy sin disease, and we're escorted out, leper, leper, with no mission to strive for, no means to attempt it, no reward to be achieved, and so we sink our hands, or sink our head into our hands in defeat knowing that God's righteous hatred of our sin is our doom, cast out forever. You see, God hates sin. Our culture's pitted love and hate against each other. How can God be loving and hating at the same time? I thought he was a loving God. Well, he is. He's also a hating God. You can love and simultaneously hate. In fact, oftentimes, the absence of hate means the absence of love. You love kids, therefore you hate child abuse. You love Jews, therefore you hate the Holocaust. You love dogs, therefore you hate cats. Just kidding. I mean, if you're a cat lover, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, forgive me. We can move forward. No, I, like, I love kids, therefore I hate Child abuse, those two can simultaneously exist. You can't just be indifferent towards child abuse and say you love kids. You can't be indifferent towards the Holocaust. You can't be like, you know, Hitler, he had his reasons. And be like, yeah, I love Jews. No, like that doesn't, you can't coexist with those two things. You love this, therefore you hate that. God loves his holy character, therefore he hates sin because it perverts his holy character. He loves his glory, therefore anything that goes against his glorious character, he hates. Sinner, 
that thinks my sin's not that big of a deal. Kind of indifferent towards Jesus. Listen, God's holy character hates sin so much that he saw his own son become sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and he, Isaiah 53, 10, crushed him, his own son. What do you think he will do to you? And so we, the unclean, unrighteous lepers, cast out into despair, we hang our heads knowing we could never ascend this hill. We can't approach this holy God, it'd crush us. We don't have clean hands, pure heart, never worshiped. I've always worshiped false things. I can't even be in the presence of this holy God. Why would I ever even attempt to approach him? And so... We're outside the camp in despair, and then all of a sudden, we hear a voice of a man who's descended the hill, the holy presence, and in the form of a baby, arrives in a manger. And he goes through his life perfectly with clean hands and a pure heart as its source, and always doing the Father's will and worshiping the Father in everything that he does. And as he makes his way at the foot of Golgotha, he begins to ascend the hill. And he's lifted up on a cross. And in the moment, he became sin who knew no sin. And his ascent is screechingly halted. And he dies the death that we deserved. And he descends into the grave. But he doesn't stay dead. It seemed that all hope was lost, but King Jesus rises up victoriously, proving he's the son of God and the only one, the king of glory, who could ascend the hill. And he sprints victoriously up the holy hill and into the presence of God. And Psalm 24, 7 through 10 paints it way better than I ever could. And so let's listen to the psalmist. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. Selah. Think on that. For the first time, someone takes the hill Someone ascends the holy hill of the Lord and without even asking permission, sits down in form of completion. The mission is done. It is finished. He looks up at the Father and says, it is finished. When we put our trust in this King of glory, King Jesus, what we are doing is we're saying, Jesus Run the hill for me. Take my sins away. I want to be in the presence of God. I want God. I want reconciliation with the Father. And the only hope that I have of being in his holy presence is if Jesus, I trust that you can take away my sins. You can forgive me of my sins if I would just believe that you died and rose again and turned from my sin. After a holy encounter with God, I want to wholly obey you. Christ follower, 
Jesus didn't just live righteously for you. He didn't just die your death for you. He ascended the hill and sat down in the presence of God on his throne for you. There is nothing left for you to do. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He didn't pay the total and say, now you pay the tip for the rest of your life. No, he paid it all. There's nothing left for you to do to please this God. It's the beauty of Christianity. So, Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is now at the right hand of the Father interceding on your behalf. Look, all week you don't measure up. All week, like you're not successful enough. You don't make as much money as you want. You're not as pretty as you'd like. You don't have the coolest Facebook and Instagram and whatever. You don't get enough likes. You don't, like you're not, you don't do the Pinterest dinners, right? Right? You don't get your kids on bed, in bed on time. You know, there's this mom that you see on Facebook with seven. She does it right every single night. She eats dessert every night because she posts it, right? She eats dessert every single night for dinner. Never works out. She looks like a mod. I don't measure up to that. Like, I can't measure up. I, I, I can't meet the list that my wife makes for me. I can't do it. I can't make the boss happy. I, I don't measure up. Like heaven is for losers. It's for people that don't measure up. So listen, all who are weary and are heavy laden and sick of the rat race and sick of not measuring up, give yourself to Jesus. There is rest to be had in Christ when you cast your burdens upon him and give yourself to him. Heaven isn't for people who think they're strong enough to ascend the hill. It's for those weak enough to realize that Jesus does it for them. And if you're in here and you're like, I measure up, like I'm, you're kind of above people. Like, I, like I'm very successful. I always do right. Like I'm, I'm pretty rich in good looks, monetarily, I measure up for the most part. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than it is for you to get into the kingdom. Heaven isn't for people who think they're strong enough to ascend the hill. It's for those weak enough to realize they need a Savior to pick them up and carry them to God's presence. And what's the goal? God's presence. If God's not your goal, then we've got nothing. God, we want your presence. And so we look to Jesus, our Savior, to bring us to you. But we have no business and no credentials for being there to enter your holy place. And so Jesus has the credentials on our behalf, and he enters the gates, and he says, he's with me, she's with me. I forgave their sins. My blood covers their sins. And the Father looks, and he says, welcome. Jesus is the King of glory. And one day, he will stand as king over all the earth. 
and every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The question is not, will you make Jesus Lord of your life? The question is not that. He already is Lord. Psalm 24, one and two says that he, the earth is his. All its inhabitants in the world, they're all his. He already is Lord of all. The question is not, will you make him the Lord of your life? The question is, will you submit to his lordship or will you spit on his lordship? Because one day, this king of glory with a rod of judgment will crack the knee of those who spit on his lordship in this life and say, yeah, you're Lord, but I hate it. And you will bow your knee in hatred of his glory. And for those who had an encounter with Jesus and submitted to his lordship, will gladly say, king of glory, have your way. Praise God. For the glory of God and the love of your neighbors and the nations. Let's go tell them. Let's tell them, let's tell the nations and our neighbors about this glorious God who is worthy of praise, this Jesus who showers you with grace. Let's tell them about the joy of grace through a Savior who ascends the hill for us. Let's tell them of the blessed contentment to be had no matter the circumstances. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. All hell, King of kings and Lord of lords, King Jesus.